Tonight, we find ourselves in the book of 3 John. We have done kind of a short mini-series on the letters of John. And so we covered all of 2 John last week, and we're covering all of 3 John this week. 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible, uh, maybe not in terms of the number of verses, but in terms of the number of words in it. It's the shortest book in the Bible. And so uh, you get to go home and tell your family and friends, yes, we read an entire book of the Bible in church tonight. So congratulations for that. If you would turn to 3 John, read along with me. I'd like to to read straight through the passage and then pray and then kind of get to work unpacking what it's saying for us. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some out in the lobby at the uh, Connect desk. We'd love to give you one. That'd be our gift to you. But with that, let's go ahead and read together and then we'll pray and get to work. Third John, verse one. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends every one of them. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together, church. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is given to instruct us and to challenge us, to shape us and grow us. God, each and every single one of us who are here tonight, we need to be challenged and we need to be grown in some way or another. God, for those who are here who are not yet Christians, I pray that you would show them your love for them, show them the goodness of your grace, the goodness of your gospel. God, for those who are Christians, I pray that you would help us see the areas of remaining sin in our life that need to be put to death by your spirit and by your help, that we could live lives imitating what is good and not imitating what is evil from the overflow of the love that we've received from you. God, I pray you'd guard my lips tonight, help me to teach only that which is in alignment with the truth of your word and give us all receptive hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. A number of years ago, uh, the powers that be decided to relaunch the film franchise of the superhero Batman. 
And uh, this was a great day of celebration for me because I love Batman. I love the Batman movies and they had been kind of lame up until that point. So they decided to relaunch the Batman film franchise and the guy they chose to play Batman was named Christian Bale. Uh, any fans of Christian Bale Batman movies out there? I love these movies. Well, here's the problem. Before they started filming the Batman movies, he had been in another movie where he was playing a, a, a severe drug addict and he had dropped a lot of weight for this part. He's a, you know, an average height and build. He had dropped down to something like 120 pounds. Very unhealthy, very sickly looking, playing the part of this drug addict. And they said, hey, we're gonna start filming this Batman movie in six months. And when you show up, you need to be in shape. You need to be healthy. You need to be muscular. You need to look like Batman, not like Peter Parker, right? And so they said, put on some weight, put on some muscle and come back and we'll start filming in six months. And in six months, Christian Bale put on, get this, 100 pounds in six months. He actually showed up at 220 and the filmmaker said, whoa, <laughs> too far. And he had to lose 30 of those pounds that he had put on because he was too muscular and too big for the role of Batman. He took this instruction that they gave him, a good instruction, a needed instruction, and he just ran with it. He went further than was intended by the one giving the instruction. We actually are gonna see that there's a relation to that in this letter that we're reading tonight. You know, if you, if you were here last week, you remember hearing Pastor Shane kind of unpack the, these letters that John was writing to various churches or to a church, giving them instruction and, and, and bonus points. I'll give you 50 bonus points if anybody can remember kind of the big idea of 2 John last week, some big themes that emerged. Just shout it out. Anybody remember? Love, that was one of them. What's the other one? Truth, boom, you guys, I'll split the 50, you guys 50 points each, okay? I'm feeling generous tonight. The ideas of how truth and love intersect together and how they cannot be separated. And in fact, John, in, in the letter we read last week, he actually said something so stern. He said, if someone comes to you and preaches a false gospel, if they preach a, uh, under the name of Jesus something that is not the true gospel, I don't even want you to associate with them. I don't even want you to have a meal with them. He, he said some very stern things. He called them antichrists and deceivers. And what we're going to see today in our letter to, to this man, Gaius, we're going to see that there was a person in the church who took that instruction and ran with it to a place that John never intended. Like I said, uh, 3 John, just by way of information, it is the shortest book in the New Testament. It's, it's something like uh, 230 words in the New Testament Greek. It's very short. It's a very standard letter form, and it actually goes really well with 2 John. Uh, many Bible scholars call 2 and 3 John, they call them the twin epistles or the twin letters. I think they're maybe fraternal twins, not identical, but they're very, very similar in many, many ways. And so where John was instructing last time about truth and love and making sure that you're discerning and not being taken captive by deceitful teachings, uh, we're gonna see he has some other things to say to people in this church uh, tonight. So let's pick it back up in verse one. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Okay, it's a pretty standard New Testament letter. No surprises here. He starts out with a greeting. He refers to himself as the elder. This is John, one of Jesus' closest disciples. When Jesus was ministering here on the earth, John was a young man, probably the youngest of the disciples. And now many years later, he is older, mature, wiser. He's a leader of leaders of leaders. And he refers to himself as the elder. That's a common way that John speaks of himself. To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So because I'm curious about these sorts of things, I always ask, well, who is Gaius? 
Gaius is a pretty common New Testament era name. It was a pretty common male name. And so there's a few guys named Gaius in the New Testament, maybe in the, in the book of Acts and other places. The fact is we simply don't know who this Gaius is. There's not enough data to connect him to somebody else. So we don't really know who he is. We don't exactly know what church he was a part of, but we do know this. He and John were very close. Notice the word beloved. He's my beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Or then right at the beginning of verse two, there's that word beloved again. Or if you read ahead in verse five, beloved, he loves this guy. This is a term of endearment. In the, in the Greek, it's, it's related to love. It's not simply like, hey, my buddy or my friend. It's, it's my dear friend, my beloved friend. It's a strong term of affection and a strong term of endearment. First John was written to a group of churches. Second John was written to a church. And now third John is written to an individual, a man named Gaius, who is a very close friend of John's. And I like that he says this, to my beloved Gaius, whom I love in, what's the word, Sound City? Truth, whom I love in truth. You see, there's a wedding, a marriage between truth and love that is uh, absolutely inescapable. I, let, me, let me just talk for a minute kind of about what we're experiencing even as a culture right now in the United States of America. There is a lot of talk about love and people loving one another at a national level. You cannot uh, go on social media, you cannot turn on the news right now without having some sort of a discussion about love. And I would summarize our culture's uh, teaching on love about like this. It says that love is the most important value that we should all hold to. Would you agree that our culture puts love at the top of the list? We should all love each other. We should love one another. That's what is spoken of. They've kind of taken the Beatles ethic, you know, all you need is love and really run with it. So our culture says that, the lo that love is the most important value. You know what's interesting? The Bible actually agrees. The Bible says that the greatest of these is love. It says that greater love has no man than, than he lays down his life for his friend and that love is the greatest ethic, that all of these things should be bound together in love. The Bible and our culture actually agree that love is the most important thing. Or do they? Because even though our culture and the Bible use the same word, love, I would submit to you that the Bible and our culture mean two very different things when they use the word love. Would you agree? Our culture, when it uses the word love, and this is my perspective on this. You can disagree with me when you want, but I think it's pretty clear to see that our culture teaches a love that says, whatever makes me happy, whatever gives me pleasure, whatever I find enjoyable, that's what I love. It's a, it's a self-focused type of love. Whereas the Bible says greater love has no one than he lays down his life for others. There's a sacrificing of oneself, a, a lowering, a humbling of oneself. Our cultural definition of love says yes to every desire. If I want it, it must be had, it must be mine. And so I love it. And I, I say yes to every single desire. But in the Bible, love in 1 Corinthians 13 says love does not insist on its own way. Just because I want something doesn't mean I have to have it. Our culture says that, that the, the real standard for love is whatever gives you self-fulfillment, basically whatever makes you happy. If it makes you happy, then you should go for it. Whereas the Bible, when it speaks of love, says that love does not rejoice with evil, but it rejoices in the truth. Our culture's definition of love is feelings-based, and the, the Bible's definition of love is not empty of feelings, but it certainly is more than that. It's feelings mixed with truth put into action, right? Pastor Shane said that last week, right? For God so loved the world that he what? 
that he sat in heaven and felt warm, fuzzy feelings about us? No, for God so loved the world that he gave. He put his love into action, sending his son Jesus to die for us and to speak a word of truth saying that we are sinful and we need help, we need rescuing. Sometimes we don't like it when love is married with truth, but if we were honest, we'd know that it's what we need. Let me give you, let me give you an example to illustrate what I'm talking about, okay? Yesterday, it was a beautiful, sunny summer day, something like 147 degrees in my backyard. I'm hanging out with my family. The children are playing. I'm working on a project. And uh, my daughter, my two-year-old daughter, started playing with bubbles. That's a good thing for a kid to do, right? Playing with bubbles. Yay, making bubbles. I'm two. And then you know what she started doing? She started drinking the bubbles. And, 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 and I thought to myself, that's not good. I need to put a stop to this. Now, I went over to her. I said, honey, you cannot drink the bubbles. You know, based on your knowledge of two-year-olds, how do you guys think this conversation went? There's <laughs> a scream that echoed for miles around. It was heard from Everett to Olympia. This, this evil, wicked father of mine is trying to take away my bubbles that I just want to drink. And I'm trying to explain to her, I'm, I'm trying to get down to her level. You're two, you don't understand. I love you. Because I love you, I'm gonna say no to you drinking the bubbles because it's gonna rot your guts and you'll turn out like me and it's gonna be weird. And, and she just didn't get it. She just wanted to drink the bubbles and she didn't understand that I was actually acting in love toward her because it is not loving for me to say to a two-year-old, just do whatever you want, amen? And by the same token, God does not just say to us, do whatever you want. He speaks love to us with truth. It is, they have to be married together. Let me read you this quote from Daniel Aiken. He's a, a Bible scholar and a commentator. He says this, love, speaking of biblical love, it does not function as some disconnected emotion with no substance or content. Without truth, it will devolve into mere sentimentalism. Love and truth are necessary companions. When they go together, they work together, they must stay together. John here expresses sincere love flowing from both heart and head, a love rooted in him, rooted in God, who is the truth and the true God. So when our culture speaks about love and when we speak about love, I would submit to you that we need to be discerning. We need to think biblically about love. We can say things like, yes, love is the most important thing and we need to love each other, but what do we actually mean by that? I would submit to you that when we speak about loving people, it is not some cold robot, you know, emotionless feeling, but it is, it is emotion wedded with truth put into action. We need to think biblically about love. And so when John uh, praises Gaius, he says, uh, you know, I, I love you in the truth. I love you in the truth. Let's keep going in verse two here. Beloved, there's our word again, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. How many of you know that God cares about us as whole people? Sometimes in church, we talk a lot about the soul and the health of our spiritual well-being, but God cares about the whole person, amen? Amen. Now, granted, our, our physical bodies are wearing down. One day, should Jesus not return before this, we will all experience death. But God cares about our physical bodies. God even cares about our physical health. I, I, I want to say this just for Sound City Bible Church. You know, we've been through some really difficult circumstances over the last year, and God has been so faithful to us. And we as the elder team have really been pursuing 
health, spiritual health, emotional health, yes, even physical health, so that we can be healthy pastors who can lead healthy leaders, who can lead healthy community groups. We can be a healthy church. Do you wanna be a healthy church, Sound City? And I'm really encouraged by what I see um, some individuals in the church doing things like, uh, you know, taking um, time to eat healthier and to exercise. God wants our bodies to be in good health and our souls to be in good health. God cares about the whole person. So that, that one's a side note that's free of charge. I just want you to know I'm thankful for those of you who are pursuing health along with us, not just physical health, but spiritual, emotional, relational health all across the board. And here, John is praising Gaius for pursuing health. Verse three, for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I love that phrase. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Because truth is not just something you know intellectually. Truth is something that you live out, amen? So John says, I'm excited to hear that you're walking in the truth. You understand it in such a way that it affects your life. And here John is speaking, my, my children, he's not talking of his flesh and blood children. He's talking about the members of the church. I have no greater joy than to hear that the people whom I love, like a, with a father's love, the members of the church are walking in the truth. They're living out what it is that they profess to believe. So this is an encouraging greeting. John loves Gaius. He loves this dear brother, this dear friend. But he's not done praising him. He's actually gonna put forward something specific that Gaius has done and he wants to encourage him for being a good example. Let's keep going in verse five. Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, that's the name of Jesus, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Okay, what's going on here that's got John so excited about? You have to remember at this point in history, the Christian faith, the Christian religion, if you were, had not yet exploded across the world. It was in the process of exploding, but it was still a fledgling movement. These disciples had, had seen Jesus risen from the dead with their own eyes and they wanna go out and tell people about the Messiah. They wanna go tell people the good news. They wanna go tell people the good news that, that though we are sinners, God sent his son Jesus to live a life that was perfect and to die a death in our place on a cross for our sins. And then on the third day, he rose again offering salvation to all who would trust in him. They wanna go out and tell everybody this good news, right? Right? And they need support to do so. There's no church planting organizations. There's no large, you know, uh, endowment funds to give money to support them. They're just going out, literally going door to door, knocking on people's doors saying, hey, could we please talk to you about Jesus? He was dead. He came back to life. I think you want to hear about this. And they need support. They don't want to ask for money from the Gentiles. They want to ask for money from those who don't yet know Jesus. They want to raise support from within. And so here, John is excited to praise Gaius because Gaius has been very supportive of these missionaries, these brothers going out. They're going out, they're sharing the good news of the gospel. Actually, it's interesting, um, the idea of hospitality, you have, you have kind of an obligation in this culture where if you show up, 
It's an expectation that people will take you into their home, they will offer you a meal, and they will even let you stay in their home. I was having a conversation with a woman this week who was born and raised in the Middle East. She said it's still the same to this day. There's a, there's a higher expectation culturally that you're gonna be hospitable and you're gonna welcome people in. Could you imagine if that was the cultural expectation in our, in our day? In, in the United States of America, every time a Mormon missionary or everyone, every time someone tries to sell you a security system for a home, you had to invite them in and make them a grilled cheese sandwich. Like, that's just a different culture, right? But here you had to do it. There was an obligation. But John is praising Gaius saying, you, you, you did this faithful thing for these brothers, strangers as they were, and they testified to your love before the church. John is saying, guys, you didn't just welcome them in because it was your duty and your obligation. You did this out of a heart of love and they knew it and they felt it and they went back and told the whole church, Gaius really loved us. He took care of us from a heart of love. He was welcoming, he was hospitable. They sent us out with supplies and with money. And therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John is praising Gaius and he's putting him forward as a good example. This is what the gospel looks like when it takes root in a person's heart. When the gospel takes root in a person's heart, they're going to be welcoming. They're going to be loving. They're going to find ways to partner for the ministry. Maybe it's, I'm not gonna go out there with you, but I can certainly send you with some money or I can support you in that way and I can be a partner in the ministry. Gaius is a very good example and John wants everyone to know it. This is great. This is so encouraging. Till we get to verse nine, and this guy named Diotrephes showed up. So without any sort of segue, John then switches to the bad example. Verse nine, I have written something to the church. Okay, nothing good ever starts with, yeah, I wrote a letter. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, okay, this is just getting worse, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Okay, who is this Diotrephes? Well, again, unfortunately, we don't really know. We don't have a lot more context outside of what excuse me, what we just read right here. Many Bible scholars and commentators take that phrase, likes to put himself first or likes to be first or likes to be in charge. They take that to mean that he probably was a leader of some sort in the church. He may have even been an elder in the church. It's obvious that he has some influence. It's obvious that he has some authority. The problem is, is he's using that authority to be a bit of a bully. So he's probably a leader in the church. He probably, uh, well, he definitely thinks of himself as being more important than he ought to. And he is not, unlike Gaius, he is not welcoming in these brothers, these missionaries who wanna come in. And it's, it's, it's that analogy that I used earlier. Remember John had said, be guarded, be cautious, be discerning. And Diotrephes said, yeah, I got your discerning. I'm gonna cut off all relationship with any Christian missionaries and I'm gonna kick people out of the church if they even try to associate with them. He took the advice of John, he took the encouragement of John to a place that John never intended it to go, to an unhealthy extreme. And so I want you also to see this. I want you to see that Diotrephes, he's put forward as a bad example, so we need to learn from this. But it's more than just he's, can I say a jerk? It's more than that. 
And it's more than just he and John don't get along and they have a difference of opinion. No, this is an example of someone who does not get the gospel. Notice, it doesn't say that Diotrephes is a false teacher. It doesn't say that he's a wolf. It doesn't say that he's a non-Christian. He may actually be very wise in the ways of the scripture, but he's not living it out. He, this is speculation a little bit. I'm speculating here. But my sense from this passage that Diotrephes is the kind of guy who knows all of his theology right, who's got every T crossed and every I dotted, and he knows all the information up here, but he is not living it out of a transformed heart. He doesn't get the gospel. Let me, let me show this to you because it's, it's more than that. Number one, he's got a couple of things going on here, a couple of ways we can look at his bad example. He's prideful. Diotrephes is prideful. It says he likes to put himself first. He thinks of himself as more important than others. He's prideful. It's actually selfishness. He just thinks of himself too much. Number two, he is insubordinate, okay? Uh, in our culture, in the United States of America, our nation was born out of a rebellion in which we kicked out the king and said, we're in charge now, Right? we're pretty good at insubordination. We don't, we don't do the whole respect for authority thing particularly well in the United States of America. Would you agree? You don't even want to agree with me. You're too rebellious, right? <laughs> in the Bible, respect for authority is actually put forward as a very good thing. Even things like honoring your father and mother or respecting the leaders of the church or even praying for and submitting to the governing rulers. And you got to remember the Bible was written in a day where the governing rulers that they were telling him to submit to were people like Nero, not good leaders. I don't, I don't care what your view of politics is or what you think of the president or Congress or this or that. We're not talking uh, Nero bad in our culture. And yet the biblical writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, you need to submit to your, your leaders. And here we see that Diotrephes does not acknowledge the authority of John and the other apostles. So he's insubordinate. Number three, he's gossiping. It says he's talking wicked nonsense. That's talking wicked nonsense. The same root word is to gossip, using your words to tear down others. And it's, specifically, it says nonsense, meaning at least some of it was not true. He's making things up. Number four, Diotrephes is inhospitable. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He has taken John's admonition to be discerning and cautious. He's taken it to an unhealthy place. He is inhospitable. He doesn't welcome them in. Number five, he's a bully. It says that he's stopping others who do want to take these missionaries in. There are people in the church who are trying to support missionaries and he's stopping them. He's using his leadership and influence and authority to be a bully. And then number six, he's dividing the church. It says he's kicking them out. He's putting them out of the church. Like, can any of you imagine this is, the, this is somebody in your community group, right? You have Diotrephes in your community group. How dare you help that? You get out of the community group right now. This is not a good guy to have on your leadership team. He doesn't understand the gospel. Let me show you this. Let me show you how this list of bad behaviors is more than just a, a random list of bad behaviors. Let me show you how this is tied to the heart of the gospel itself. Let me show you Diotrephes versus Jesus' heart. First of all, Jesus was not prideful. He was humble. Jesus said in his kingdom in Matthew 20, he says, you know, how, you know how it works in the world where if you wanna be first, you gotta just push to the front of the line? He says, no, that's not how it's gonna work in my kingdom. 
In my kingdom, the first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be important, you go to the back of the line. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus, even though he was in the very nature of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and he took on the nature of a servant. That word always makes me think of the the story when Jesus uh, takes off his outer coat and he wraps a towel around his waist and he gets down at the last supper with his disciples and he begins to wash their feet. You have to remember Middle Eastern travelers wearing sandals, walking through the dust and all of the highways are probably covered in, you know, donkey or, or camel dung. And it's just a gross, nasty job that was reserved for the lowest of the low slaves. And yet here is Jesus on his knees, washing his disciples' feet. He took on the nature of a servant. In fact, the lowest that Jesus ever went was on the cross, dying in our place, serving us in that way. Not prideful like Diotrephes, but humble. Humility is at the heart of the gospel. Number two, he wasn't insubordinate. He was submissive. He was submissive to his father's will. The biblical teaching about God is there's one God and there's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three persons of the Trinity are equal, co-eternal, co-equal. There's no senior and junior level rankings among the members of the Trinity. And yet, even though Jesus is fully God and equal to the Father, Jesus often speaks of doing only that which he sees the Father doing. Or he says, my Father has sent me. Jesus took a place of submission to the Father's will. Why? Because he was less than him? No, because that's at the heart of the gospel. In Luke twenty-two forty-two, Jesus is praying the night of his betrayal, the night of his arrest, and he's praying in anguish and he's sweating drops of blood and he says, Father, if there is any other way, would you let this cup pass from me? He's saying, God, I don't know if any other last minute ideas have come up as opposed to this whole dying on the cross thing, but I'm, I'm open to suggestions if there's any other way. And then what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. He submits to the will of his father. This submission to the authority of the father is at the heart of the gospel. Number three, instead of gossiping, Jesus uses his words to build up. Gossiping tears down, but Jesus used his words to build up. Ephesians 4.29 is a great verse that gives this instruction. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Jesus used his words to build people up. When he would have conversations with them, he would speak truth and love to them. Think about Jesus on the cross. He's hanging there, dying for the sins of the world. What is coming out of his mouth? Not cursings, blessings. He says things like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I don't know about you. Actually, yeah, I do. But if it was you or I on that cross, I doubt very much that that would be the type of thing that would come out of our mouth naturally. Jesus used his words to build up, to bring life, even in the moment of his greatest suffering. Where Diotrephes was inhospitable, Jesus is welcoming. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. This invitation is at the heart of the gospel. And you know what's great? Jesus is more than just invitational. He's more than just welcoming. He actually goes out and finds us. 
He's the good shepherd who goes to seek and save the lost. There's a story, a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 14, where a master, a business owner, essentially wants to give a big party and all the invitations he sent out to all the important people come back and they say, now we're too busy. We can't participate. And he says, fine, go out to the highways, go to the hedges, go to the, go to the alleyways and you go find the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame and you bring them into the feast and they're gonna celebrate with me. This invitation, this searching, this seeking is at the heart of the gospel. Where Diotrephes was a bully, he used his power and authority to subjugate others. Jesus is not a bully, he's a defender of the weak. He's a defender of those who are hurting. There's a verse in, in Matthew 9 where Jesus is ministering and it says he gets ambushed by a crowd. And rather than being mad at them or resentful, it says that he had compassion on the crowd because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, have any of you guys ever spent time around sheep? Anybody spent any time around sheep? A few of you. Um, those of you who have not spent any time around sheep, they're not intelligent creatures, okay? When the Bible uses the analogy of sheep, it's not a flattering term. And they, without a shepherd, left to their own devices, get themselves in all sorts of trouble, Jesus' heart towards us is not of a, of a whip-cracking bully, you sheep better get in line, but a loving shepherd who says, let me come, let me protect you, let me care for you. And number six, where Diotrephes was divisive, Jesus is unifying. Jesus brings us together. Jesus wants his people to be united. In John 17, Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He says, I want my people to be one, just like, Father, you and I are one. Why? Here's why. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus is in essence saying the greatest demonstration that the gospel is true, that this message of salvation and forgiveness is true is when Christians get along. And at that point, all of God's people said, uh-oh. We Christians don't always have the best reputation for getting along, do we? If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch, right? We Christians, and I'm not even talking about on a global scale, I'm just talking like your community group, Right? We sometimes fight, we squabble. We, like Diotrephes, like to divide over things that are of a secondary or even a third, a tertiary sort of nature. But Jesus says, I want my people to be one. I want my people to be united. You know, it's, it's interesting, um, it's actually really encouraging to watch this, this tragedy, this horrific evil that took place in, in Charleston here this last week of this uh, shooting of of nine African-American church members in the middle of a prayer meeting. It's a horrendous, unspeakable evil. It's a wickedness that took place. But God is so good that he will even use those sorts of tragedies to bring good. What's been beautiful to me is to watch the reaction, first of all, of the members of that church speaking words of forgiveness. Have you seen some of those things? It's amazing, the, the messages of forgiveness. I want you to meet Jesus. I want you to know his love. You can be forgiven even of this. And what's been beautiful in some of this also is to watch various Christians come together and be unified for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now hear me, like John, I'm not saying you don't ever draw lines anywhere. I'm not saying that you know, unity is the thing that trumps everything, but I am saying that in Christ, we truly are one. And we should not seek to divide over things that Jesus does not want us divided over, amen? 
Do you see how this Diotrephes character, he's, it's more than he's just a rude guy. It's more than he's just, you know, kind of a jerk. It's that he doesn't get, at a heart level, he doesn't get the gospel. And so he's put forward as a, a bad example, one that we need to learn from, one that we need to avoid. Let's continue on in verse 11. After putting forward this bad example, John is going to put forward another good example, a man named Demetrius. He says this, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. We're gonna come back to that in just a minute because there's a lot more to be said. Then he says this, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. He says this, this Demetrius guy, he's a good guy. I'm sending him to you. This is a very common practice in these letters. I'm sending Demetrius, probably another one of these traveling missionaries. He has a good testimony from everyone. Everyone who's ever known him knows that he's a good guy. And what's more, it's not just everyone's opinion. It's the truth itself. Actually, that's, that's kind of a veiled way of saying God himself has given this man a good testimony. And then John says, we also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. You should trust this Demetrius character. He's a good guy. He's a good example. You could follow him. Not like Diotrephes and his bad example. And then John closes this way. I had much to write to you but I would rather not write with pen and ink. It's actually funny to see you know, a preacher say, hey, I had more to say, but I'm not gonna say it. That hardly ever happens. My favorite is in 1 Peter when Peter goes, finally, brothers, and then he writes three more chapters. That's my favorite part. Here, John actually has some restraint. He says, I had much to write with, to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. John cares deeply for not only Gaius, but for the members of this church as well. He wants to see them in person. He wants to see them face to face. And thus we reached the end of the shortest book in the Bible. Congratulations, you guys, we did it. I wanna go back to verse 11. I wanna conclude with some, something on, on verse 11 here, okay? If you take notes in your Bible, if you underline or highlight, this is a great verse to underline or highlight. It says this, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen, has not seen God. How many of you know how important it is to have good examples in your life? Quick show of hands, how many of you have had a really good example at some point in your life of what Christian faith lived out should look like? Show of hands, you had somebody you could think of? Have you thanked God for them recently? Have you realized what a treasure that is to have somebody that can not only teach you about the faith, but to actually live it out and model it for you? We need good examples. If you've ever tried to learn to do anything, you know how important it is for there to be a good example, especially if you've ever like, just something practical, like learn to work with your hands. You need a good example. You could read about how to weld in a book, but until somebody hands you the torch and has you start working on the, the iron and the metal, like you're not gonna be able to do it just from reading a book. You need a good example. You need someone to show you, amen? And the Christian faith is very much like that. I would, I would submit to you that there are many people who do not have the same joy or pleasure that you just did of raising your hands and said, yes, I have had a good example. Or even some of you who did raise your hands, you've wanted more. You could have used more good examples. You could have used more people in your life to lead you, guide you. 
I would submit that in this room, it's actually, it's a beautiful thing. We have some who are younger, we have some who are older, even in this room right now. And I'm not gonna tell you where I draw that line because I'll offend somebody wherever I try it, but I'm just saying, think of yourself however you will. But I know for myself as, as someone who's, you know, in, in my 30s, I have been very blessed with some good examples in my life, but I need plenty more. I need some men and some women who have a few gray hairs or maybe just a few hairs, period, to model things like what it looks like to, to raise your children through into adulthood. Any of you younger people wish you had some more in your life, some more older people to, to mentor you, to shepherd you, to guide you, to give you some experience? I would encourage those of you who are younger, don't wait. You can feel free to go up to someone and say, hey, you look old. Would you mentor me? I maybe, maybe don't be quite that blunt, but hey, do you have some experience? Do you have things you could share with me? Those of you who are older, my encouragement to you is please don't discount yourself. I know in some of the conversations, actually he just had one this morning with someone who's older. Well, I don't, I don't know. I've made a lot of mistakes. You know what we need? We actually need to learn from your mistakes. If you've fallen into a few pits, maybe you could help us avoid some of them. Amen? Those of you who are older, my sincere admonition to you, my, actually my plea for you is uh, don't retire. You're more valuable now than you've ever been because God has given you a lifetime of experience and some of it's been good, some of it's probably been not so good, but you can share that with those of us who are younger. And those of you who are younger, you're not off the hook either because 1 Timothy 4 says that don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, life, love, faith, and purity. So even if you're younger, you're still called to be an example. We're all called to be good examples. We're all called to live our lives in a way that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all called to be that example for someone. Those of you who are younger, maybe for you it's as simple as volunteering in our kids' ministry and, and showing the children what it looks like to be somebody who loves Jesus and worships Jesus and has joy in serving him. We need good examples. We need to follow good examples. We need to learn from good examples. And, and, and the Bible is full of them. Actually, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. How many of you guys have read Hebrews chapter 11? I've been reading ahead in Hebrews because I'm really excited to start on Hebrews this fall. We're gonna do, uh, as of my last uh, uh, plan, Hebrews is gonna be about 52 sermons long. We're gonna spend almost a whole year, probably over a whole year in the book of Hebrews. I'm really excited about it. And in Hebrews 11, there's an entire chapter full of people who are put forward as good examples of faith. This person trusted in God. This person had faith in God. It's a whole list of good examples. However, and this is a big however, please hear me clearly on this. The Christian life is not just looking at good examples and then trying your best to follow them. The Christian life, we need good examples, but it's more than that. Look what John says. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. How? Because whoever does good is from God and whoever does evil has not seen God. Let me, let me give this to you clearly. For those of you who are non-Christians, the, the message of the gospel and the, the foundational truth about the Christian faith is not that we who are Christians are, are people who try to follow good examples and do our very best to live good and upright and godly lives. No, the message of the gospel is that despite our best efforts, we have been unable to live perfect, upright and righteous lives. We have reached the end of ourselves and we've realized that we need a savior. 
We need a new birth. We need a new heart. We need a new mind. We need a new identity. And in fact, that's what John says. If you're going to be able to do good, you need to be from God. That is the way that John speaks of the new birth. If you are from God, that means you have been reborn. You've been given a new heart. You've been given the mind of Christ. You've been given the spirit of God and you're now able to follow those examples, not because you're just gritting your teeth and trying harder, but because God himself is at work within you. That's good news, amen? I don't know about you, but, but sometimes examples can actually have the opposite effect. There are sometimes when I see a good example and I think, wow, that's amazing and it inspires me to want to be like them. But there are other times where I see a good example and I think, I'll never be like them. I like going to, to concerts. I'm a musician. I love seeing uh, world-class musicians play. And there have been times when I've walked away from certain concerts, certain performers, especially in the classical world, and I think, I'll never pick up my guitar again. I'm so depressed because I'll never be able to do what they just did. And I know that some of you have felt that way, even around more mature Christian brothers and sisters. You've thought, I can't believe how holy they are. I can't believe how mature they are. I can't believe how godly they are. There's no stinking way, although you didn't think stinking because you got to grow in your maturity, right? There's no stinking way I'll be able to be like them. And you've actually maybe been disheartened. But here's where the good news comes in. It's not about trying harder to just imitate a good example. It's about God working in you because you have been born of God. I hope you need some gospel in your life tonight because that's all I have for you at the end of the day. We need good examples. We need to be good examples. But more than that, we need the new birth that comes from being adopted into the family of God. I'll read you a quote from uh, Marianne Thompson. She's a, a biblical scholar, a biblical commentator speaking on this idea of doing good things. This is what she says. Good here is not a general category of good things, just doing good things, but specifically the good that comes from God, that is in harmony with God's character and is in keeping with God's actions. And here it is. Above all, that good is the good of love modeled and inspired by God. Let us love one another for love is of God. Love for others demonstrates both love for God and the indwelling love of God flowing through that person. Here it is. The call to imitate what is good, what is from God, will be heeded only by those who are also from God. For those who have not come into fellowship with God cannot live out the good. For those of you who are here tonight who are not Christians, I want to lovingly invite you to receive this, this new heart that I'm talking about, to acknowledge I am a sinner. I've tried to be good and I'm terrible at it. I tried to live up to God's standard and I fail time and time again. Would you receive his grace tonight? Would you receive the new birth? Would you receive his spirit? For those of you who are Christians, my encouragement for you is this. Seek to imitate what is good. Don't imitate evil, imitate what is good, but do so from a heart of knowing that you have been given a new spirit. You've been given a new mind. You've been given a new heart. You know what you, what you can do? As this scholar here is saying, you can live out the life that God has for you because he is at work within you. It's not about just imitating a good example. It's about living up to what God has already said is true about you. You are loved, you are holy, you are righteous in Christ Jesus. Will you learn to live like it? That's some good news. It's a short letter. It's a profound letter. And let me just say this in closing. This is my, I mean it sincerely, my last thought. Just a word of pastoral encouragement to you, Sound City Bible Church. Um, 
This is my last sermon before I take a bit of a break here these next few weeks. We have some guest teachers come in. And like John, I can't say, you know, I'm proud of my children because I'm the age of some of your children. But in that sense of a pastor and a shepherd's heart, I am so proud of you, Sound City Bible Church. It is a remarkable thing to watch what God is doing in the hearts and the lives of the people of this church. And I want you to know that as your pastor, I'm sincerely proud of you. I'm sincerely thankful for you. And I can see the work of God in you. I see what he's doing in your hearts. I see what he's doing in your lives. I get to have conversations about the ways that, that you're walking away from sin. You're growing in humility. I'm so thankful for the work of God in us. And I pray that we would learn how to not imitate evil, but to imitate good out of a heart of knowing that we are loved by our heavenly father. And we get to do so for years, even generations to come. Amen, church. I'm so proud of you. I'm so thankful for you. Like John, I, I have no greater joy than to see that the members, the people are walking in truth. And that's not just me. That's God's heart towards you. That he's proud of you. And he's not ashamed of you, but he loves you. I wanna call us to a time of response tonight. We're gonna respond as we do in, in a few ways. The first way we're gonna respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And so I would invite the financial stewards to come forward and begin to collect the offering. We, uh, if you're a guest, we don't expect you to give anything. This is not something you're under obligation to do, but you're welcome to if you'd like. Those of us who are Christians, especially those who are members of this church, want to give out of a, a heart of response and a heart of worship to our God. And so uh, we'll do that now. If you want information on how to give online or how to text to give, you can find that on your Connect card. And while they're collecting the offering, let me go over a few uh, discussion questions for you here this week that you can talk about in your community groups. First one is this. Why is John so concerned that his readers not just know the truth, but walk in it? Number two, how is the biblical definition of love different from our culture's definition of love? Number three, when you reflect on your life, who are the people that have been good examples of godliness? And what did you see in them? And what are you particularly thankful for? This would be a great opportunity to share with others in your community group about the ways that God has been faithful to you through the lives of other people, okay? Next slide, please. Number four, if you were to take stock of your own heart and life, honestly, which of Diotrephes' sins might you find? Pride, rebellion, gossip, lack of hospitality, bullying, or divisiveness? You guys want to be real this week in community group? That's what we call a meddling question right there. That's a good one. Number five, how is Jesus the ultimate example for us? Because he is. But even more importantly, number six, how is Jesus more than just an example? And then number seven, how does the gospel change us from the inside out? Talk about those things this week in your community groups. Talk about this passage, this short but powerful letter in your homes. We're gonna also continue our time of response by celebrating communion, the Lord's table. This is where all who are Christians come together and we receive the bread and the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience. And we remember that Jesus has loved us perfectly, that he has laid down his life for us. And that at this table, we are one. We come together as one church family. We come together to receive his grace. So if you're a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor, you're welcome to join us at the table. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you would give your sin to Jesus, trust in him and come forward and receive from the table for the first time tonight. And we're gonna respond with singing. Sean and the, the band are gonna lead us in a time of, of singing and celebrating and rejoicing our God, our God of truth and our God of love. And so I invite you to lift your voices and sing and clap and even raise your hands and most importantly, lift your hearts to God as we celebrate him. Let's do this. Let's stand together. I'll pray and we'll begin our time of singing and responding at the Lord's table.
Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this word to us. God, I'm so thankful that you have given us good examples to follow. God, I'm even thankful that you have given us bad examples to learn from. I pray that you would give us humility to not have to learn the hard way every time ourselves. But God, even more than the good examples and the bad examples, I'm so thankful that you give us your Holy Spirit. You give us a new heart. You give us a new mind. You give us a new identity. You give us new desires. And God, I pray you would help us to live those out. Help us not to slip into our old patterns of living, but to live the new life, the Christ life that you have given to us, that you've purchased through your blood. And I pray that we would celebrate you with love and with truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen.